Well, I'm very excited today because we have a guest speaker. Uh, if you notice in your handout, we've called him Coach, Coach Todd Burden. Uh, I'm very excited uh, about, I don't know, good grief, five years ago, I think it was, five years? Yeah. Uh, I was speaking at a conference in Daytona Beach and uh, had never met Todd before, but he was there as well uh, and was speaking and, and he had loaded up a group of, of young people, uh, created a worship band out of them and was traveling from place to place all over the country, uh, sharing the gospel, setting up, doing worship music for people. Uh, he's had a long history of um, developing basketball camps that communicate the gospel. Um, I'm so thankful that he's a free grace guy. Uh, so I enjoy that. I appreciate that. Um, and just uh, especially since we've been able to catch up over the past couple of days, so thankful for the encouragement uh, that he is to me. He he was in Evansville, Indiana for a while, so we know some of the same people and some of the same roads and and uh, all of that good stuff. I don't know. It's fun. But uh, he is the, what, what is your official title? You president? He's it. Okay. His ministry is called Inbounds Ministries. I encourage you to check that out um, and, and uh, maybe to learn a little bit more, read more on it. But if you would, please give a warm welcome to co uh, Coach Todd Burden, please. Get my water. Good morning, everybody. Jeremy said I was in Evansville for a while. That What's crazy is we didn't meet until around five years ago, but I actually was born and raised in Evansville, so I was there for most of my life, right near where Jeremy was during his time there. Uh, not only did we have a link in locality, but he played drums for a group that I then ended up a road pastor for for a while, but we just missed each other on, on that exchange. So we had all kinds of near misses along the way until we we met up at the Bold Grace Conference that we were sharing at in Daytona. And then I was kind of kicking myself, to be honest, because I realized, what years were you pastoring? When did you do the church plant? Okay, so I didn't quite miss you. Okay, I don't feel as bad. Because when I met him, I didn't realize what years it was. We were in Evansville in 2000, until 2005, and the whole time desperately wishing there was a good Free Grace Church. So we just missed you by a year with doing that. But I am thrilled to be here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a couple of things as I give you a little more introduction on me, and then we're gonna dive into the scriptures. But I'm gonna first warn you, he called me coach. That means I get a thing that my wife calls sometimes a coach face. Oh, that's what my wife just did. Oh, to whoever did oh, you have a kindred spirit over there. Because she used to not even want to come watch me coach when I was still coaching. She's like, I don't like that face. I don't, like I don't mean it as a bad thing. It's just coaches tend to get a little intense sometimes. And here's the deal. If I have, and I'm not planning to do that, but if I do, what is it that makes a, a player respond positively or negatively to a coach? It's according to if they believe that coach is really on their side. Which is also why we respond positively or negatively to something God tells us in His Word. Is do we really trust that He loves us and is on our side? 
So, so if I do happen to be blunt with something, know it's coming from love. But I can't help the space. All right. So uh, he mentioned Inbounds Ministries. I guess I'll start first with the family. Lisa and I are on a 30 for 30 tour right now is what it's called. And on this tour, it's 30 days. We're celebrating. There's been 30 years I've been ordained. So that, that was part of it to play into the marketing. But also in October, Lisa and I are getting ready to celebrate our 30th anniversary. So, so that's a good celebration. But here's my prayer request for you as we get going. We're well into this, this trip. We've done 6,800 miles or so, so far on this one. Still got a couple thousand more to go. Uh, but this is our first trip without one of those teams like Jeremy talked about. I've usually got a music team or a sports team with me or something. And it's our first trip without any of our kids. Okay, we've got five kids and our baby started college this past month. And so she couldn't be with us. And so really this trip is also so I can find out if my wife still likes me. That, that, that's a big part of it. It's like, hey, oh yeah, I remember your name because everything's been so busy. So, so it's been a great trip. We've done some tours of national parks and things along those miles, and, and it's been wonderful. But we mentioned Inbounds Ministries, and I'm, I'm not going to spend very much time because I want to get into the Word. But I will tell you, this was started in the mid-90s when my music partner said, I can't go on the road any longer. And the problem was, is we had, we had songs that I had written that I couldn't play because my partner was the guitarist and he wrote the music to them and he's a brilliant guitarist and I'm a very bad guitarist. So I couldn't play it. And I just started saying, Lord, who did you make me? What, how did you create Todd Burden to do some things? And obviously I've always been involved in sports doing those things. And he said, son, use your athletics. And I'm thinking, what? You know, I'd heard of people doing athletic ministries, but I'm a grace guy. I'm an evangelistic guy. I, I believe grace is not just for evangelism. I believe it's our only basis and motivation for discipleship. I believe grace is it. And, and how do I use athletics in this? And I started researching and I found this, that the most conservative number I found is that 75% of Americans are affected by sports every day. Somebody in here might say, nah, I don't care about sports. You still heard about Go Pack this morning. See, you were still affected by it because it's such a huge part of our culture. And I started saying, wait a minute, that might be a good way to reach some people. And a few years later, as we were doing some events and, uh, and going on, I had an offer to do some things online. They offered me some web hosting in, in 2002. So we started doing sports-related uh, devotions. It's coachburden.com. And we've done one every Monday since the first Monday of 2002. And those use sports from a grace perspective to teach truths. And that's allowed us to have outreach all over the world with, with God's incredible message. And then in 2007, I had just finished up coaching in North Carolina. I'll give you a quick background on that. 
I'm an Indiana guy, so basketball is my primary. And I moved to North Carolina to coach a team. The team started, it's a high school team. Our team started a six foot eleven young man, two six foot eight guys, a six foot five guy that had a forty three inch vertical leap. Uh, it was it was a whole new world from a little Christian school I was coaching at in southern Indiana. And next thing I know, there's 50 Division I coaches in our gym for our fall workouts. We sent five young men to Division I basketball off of that team, off the seniors on that team. <clears throat> Had all kinds of opportunities with sports. And then, as we started saying, God, why did you move us here? You know, I'm in a school, I'm teaching Bible, so I was loving that. Some things were happening, and one day my wife looked at me and said, it's time. I said, what's that? She said, for us to go full-time with Inbounds Ministries. And I gave my resignation the next day, effective at the end of that school year, and we hit the road and have been doing this since 2007 in using this platform to share. Now, here's, here's why I use it. How many of you in here like to win trophies? Now, in today's world, all you got to do is play, <laughs> Right? How many of us old-timers can't stand that everybody gets a trophy in this? <laughs> Look at that. I, I'll get more amens out of that than anything I preached, Jeremy. It's going to be good. We can't stand that. But like, guys, we are just wrapped up with the desire to put hardware on our shelves and say we're great at something. In fact, while on this trip, I was reading an, an article about the Mexico City Marathon. Okay, So folks that, and, and I'm a basketball guy, I don't understand this, folks that want to go out and run for 26 miles. I don't understand it. If you're not trying to score, why are you running that much? 26, or 26 miles, there were 30,000 people entered the Mexico City Marathon recently. Wow, 11,000 of them were, were disqualified for cheating. 11,000 were skipping the checkpoints they, did, they do every five kilometers or kilometer. They're, they're, che they're cheating. They found some rode public transportation to get to the next spot. You think we're not just, look, we're eaten up with the desire. To, I don't know why this popped in my mind. Anybody remember the old Goofy movie, the cartoon one? Where, where, where Goofy's friend is bowling in his RV that's so rich and, he, and a pin's still standing and he sends his son down to knock it over and then starts cheering. Woohoo, I got a strike. And going, that's the way we are as humans. We want greatness. So, that's going to lead us in to what we're going to do this morning. Goat status. Somebody tell me, and this is hard if the room is older, so it'll probably take one of the young folks. What does goat stand for in athletics? Look, we know that now, but how many like me grew up, and if you were called the goat in sports, that wasn't a good thing? See, for me growing up, if you were called goat, 
that meant you missed the field goal at the end or fumbled at the one or missed the free throw and you were the goat. It wasn't a positive thing. So I've got to be honest. I started going, I, when I initially heard people arguing over who's the goat, I thought, why would we argue over that? And then I realized, okay, they mean greatest of all time. So we're going to take a real quick survey as we dig into some things about what Jesus says about greatness. But let's just use this as an example. Uh, greatest football player of all time. Brett Favre, man, you're a Green Bay fan. I heard Brady, I heard Favre. Anything else who did I hear? Vince Lombardi, here you go. So we got a few. Could we argue these things? Absolutely. In fact, years ago when Peyton Manning was still playing, on one of the pregame shows, Rodney Harrison and Tony Dungy were arguing about who was better, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. And they're arguing this. And Rodney Harrison said, Coach, you're saying that, that Manning's better, but look, he played with all those all-pro wide receivers. Tom didn't do that. And that sounded like a good argument until to Coach Dungy said, well, maybe if your receivers would have played with Peyton, they would have been all-pro. Right? So there's all kinds of ways we can look at things. If we're talking basketball, greatest of all time. Anybody other than Michael? <laughs> you say no, you say Kobe? So, all right, so you two are adamant. You're adamant LeBron, you're adamant Kobe. You still are adamant Michael, you're Kobe. You're Kobe's next, so you still think MJ is the greatest. Okay, well, I'm going to put Pastor on the spot. Why is MJ the greatest? That's, that's some good answers. Good answers. Most will not give that many answers to me. No, I'm glad you did, because most say, well, he had six rings. I'm like, well, Robert Ory has seven. And some of you are going, who's Robert Ory? Exactly. <laughs> so do rings mean you're the greatest? In fact, Scottie Pippen has six rings. Why wouldn't he be in the conversation? Of course, he claims he is if you keep up with sports. Okay. Listen, what I'm saying is we could get in, and I could probably stand here and get in an argument with Jeremy if I said I thought it was Bill, Ru Bill Russell, or if I thought it was LeBron James, or if I, who? if I thought it was Wilt. I mean, people talk about crazy athletes. None of these young people understand what an athlete Wilt Chamberlain was at his size. That dude was jump doing high jump when he was in college. For a body that big, that's insane. So what I'm saying is greatness is opinion-based, though. And I know, especially game of basketball, I wouldn't really argue a lot in football, but in basketball, I could stand up here and I could make a case for a lot of guys and sound pretty good with it and probably persuade some people. But if we're talking greatness on who's the GOAT, we're going to talk today about trophies versus towels. What does Jesus say that greatness is? 
So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to initially start in Luke 22, but we're going to spend most of our time in John 13. I'm going to, literally, I'm just going to do a little, little quick clip from Luke, Luke 22. But let's pray. And then I want to say, if we're looking at greatness, I want to know what Jesus has to say. Because if you're a football player and Tom Brady were standing here, wouldn't you want to know what he has to say about greatness? Or if you're a basketball player and Michael Jordan was standing here, wouldn't you want to know what he has to say about what it takes to be great? So we're going to look at the greatest and say, what does he have to say? Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your son. God, I just pray today that we'll have hearts that hearts and minds that are willing to be challenged, that are willing to be comforted, that are willing to be encouraged, minds that are willing to be transformed by allowing your word to become the way that we think. God, use these next few minutes to build us as the body of Christ. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So we're in Luke 22. <coughs> now th set the scene. This is taking place right after the triumphal entry. So Jesus and His boys are in Jerusalem. They're getting ready. They're, they're at the table for what we call always the Last Supper. Okay, so an important, we need to understand the setting of this. So these guys are at the table with Jesus, and Luke records this. Now there was also a dispute among them. And if you, according to your version, what's on here is a New King James. That's uh, what I used in Bible college, so yours may read slightly different, but you'll get the, the point. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now I want to ask you, what kind of audacity does it take to sit in front of Jesus and argue about which one of us is the greatest? Again, I just want us to have the setting. I think sometimes we read Scripture for teaching points, but we fail to realize the descriptive nature of Scripture actually tells us what's going on. What, think about what this looks like. What's happening here? These are real-life human beings, not just characters in a book. And these guys have the audacity to be arguing about who's the greatest. I blame, and my wife didn't like this, this uh, idea I have, but I blame a mama. See, I haven't... That look you gave me was kind of like, are you, what? Listen, I, I blame a mama. And remember, I'm a coach. Years ago, I was sitting in a clinic with a Hall of Fame basketball coach, and he looked at us and he said, do you guys want to get rich quick? Buy kids for what they're worth and sell them for what their parents think they're worth. In the sports world, that's very accurate. This guy was a college coach, said he still had mamas calling him. My baby needs more playing time. Going on. So the reason I blame a mama is a few days before they entered Jerusalem, 
or sometime close right before they entered Jerusalem, there was a mama who came to Jesus. She was the mama of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or what's their other nickname? Sons of Thunder. Now, if you're called the Sons of Thunder, you better be some bad boys. So, like, I, I don't know. For some reason, in my mind, I'm picturing James and John and leotards, maybe with capes, going, oh, yeah. And going, they're the Sons of Thunder. And their mama comes to Jesus, Matthew records, and kneels down and says, please let my boy sit at your right and left hand in front of the other apostles. Now, I will tell you my wife's take, and you can figure out which one you want to jump on theologically. She said she just wanted her boys to be close to Jesus. It's a mama's heart. She just wants them to be close. Well, my understanding of that culture is the right and left hand when you're in, in authority is a position of prominence and greatness. See, not all of them get to sit at the right or the left, do they? So, so to me, this is a mama saying, let my boys be the big dogs. That, that's what I picture. So we fast forward to the Last Supper. I, I'm just imagining, but I'm assuming somebody nudged one of those sons of thunder and said, your mama's saying that, and you know I'm the greatest. It's going to be me, not you. I don't know if it happened that way. I'm, I'm admitting, I'm imagining this. But I do know beyond any shadow of a doubt, they were arguing as to which one of them would be the greatest. We, we know that. Luke records that as we're going. Verse 25 begins, and he said to them. Now Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives some of the things that Jesus told them during this time. But we're not going to go there. So it could have read, and he showed them. Because I believe John records how he demonstrated his answer to this. So, let's turn to John 13. John 13. It states this. Now, before the feast of the, ta- of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to be to the Father. So freeze right there. Is Jesus aware that crucifixion is around the corner? And you think, okay, well, that's a duh question, coach. Of course we see that. But we've just got to grasp this truth because this says so much about our Savior. He's fully aware He is getting ready to be tortured and crucified. You say, yeah, but he's God, but he's also 100% man. Is he getting ready to suffer pain? I want us to think about that. Jesus didn't have this miraculous thing that he didn't feel pain because of who he was. He was man still. He was God who took on flesh. And he's fully aware. So as he's aware of this, John records... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, any English teachers in here? Or anybody that loves studying English? 
I'll just ask then in general anyway, does that sound a bit redundant? Does it? He, having loved them, He loved them? But just like in, in English, if I use the word love, can it have different slants to it on what I mean by that? See, if I tell you I love pizza, then I'm very fond of pizza. If I tell you I love my wife, does it have a little different meaning? A little deeper meaning? A little bit? A little bit? I will say this. I'm going to go into marriage counselor mode. If it means the same thing, that might be why you're having marriage problems. <laughs> okay? Because it does mean the same thing. If I say I love my wife, and all I mean is I'm fond of her, which agape, which this is actually in the verb form agapeo, it does mean to be fond of. That's a part of me loving my wife, but there's so much more meaning to this word. This word doesn't just mean to be fond of, it also has the idea of to entertain or to serve. In other words, what we would say is love in action. So, Jesus, knowing that He's getting ready to be crucified, His hour has come. His time is almost up on planet Earth. And what mixed emotions? He knows He's getting ready to do what He came for, but He also knows what He's going to fight. And instead of stewing over that, it says, having loved them, He loved them to the end. So Jesus is going to be fond of and serve to the end. Now what's the argument going on at the table? Who's the greatest? And John records this about Jesus. <clears throat> and it says, "In supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus knowing. Is Jesus fully aware of his identity? So I want to ask you, if you're fully aware that you are from God, you're going back to God, you are God in the flesh, and you hear these guys arguing on who's the greatest, how many of you would admit you would have risen from the table and said, y'all boys need to shut up? Wouldn't you? Because see, I, I was a fairly decent basketball player. And if I heard guys arguing who was better in front of me, my typical response was to stand up and say, lace them up, let's play. Let me show you. You think you're that good? See, the natural thing is, Jesus had the right, and He had the stuff to stand up and say, you all be quiet, I'm the greatest. He could have done all of that. But we know from what Luke records, he begins teaching them. And from what John records that we're looking at, he begins showing them what it looks like to be the goat. 
So I'm going to ask you here, how many of you would love to be great in your walk for the Lord? How many of you are willing to serve Him with your life? And how many of you are willing? Yeah. See, and, and I get those hands raised everywhere I go. But I'm going to tell you, there's nowhere in Scripture that it applauds us for willingness. Nowhere in Scripture are we, are we patted on the back for willingness. We're patted on the back for doing, for action. So when I, when I read, when I ask that question, I'm thinking Bobby Knight, old basketball coach, said this, everyone has the will to win, but few have the will to prepare to win. You get that? There's stuff that goes into this idea where we go beyond willingness. So we've got Jesus knowing this, and it says He rose from supper and laid aside His garments. So He took His tunic off, and He's going to gird Himself with a towel. So He, in the midst of the argument, stands up and takes the role of a servant. Servant of the house. Now in the scheme of things, how high up the ladder on importance is the servant of the house? Bottom. Bottom. And I would be willing to bet that the foot washer was definitely the bottom. How many of you, if I said we're going to have a foot washing service today, would say, well, let me do the wiping. I'll, I'll wash. Or how many, how many of you, let's be honest, how many of you go, I'm not touching those nasty feet. We're not going to touch those nasty feet. And most of those, what we call nasty feet, are in shoes, maybe socks, and have not walked in dirt. Now, I'm not trying to be gross here or anything, but I need you to understand this role was humiliating to most because these boys had been walking on dirt roads that were frequented by donkeys and goats, sheep. What kind of condition do you think these boys' feet were in? Again, I just want us to picture what's happening here. These boys are reclining at the table. This is Middle East. They're not sitting in seats up high like this. They're on the ground with their feet kind of next to each other. And I'm assuming later at night, because the servant wasn't there to wash their feet, and these boys just went on and sat down at the table and put their nasty old feet right on each other and start arguing about greatness. And Jesus stands up, laid aside His garments, His cloak, whatever He had there, so He could take the form of a servant. I couldn't help when I read laid aside, and the reason I highlighted it is to think about, and this is where I want us to really start thinking about the parallels here. Philippians 2, when it tells us to consider one another as more important than ourselves, to do nothing through selfishness or empty conceit. Then it says to consider Christ, the one who even though He was equal with God, He didn't didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Philippians 2 said He humbled Himself even to the point of death, the death of a cross. 
when Jesus laid aside here, it's a beautiful picture of what he's getting ready to do the next day. To humble himself. The greatest of all time humbled himself. For time's sake, let's move on. He's washing their feet. He came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, it could sound like Peter's being obstinate here, but I think Peter's kind of getting the picture already, to be honest. I think Peter here is saying, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. We were arguing about who's the greatest. And what we know of Peter's personality is he probably was in that argument. But yet, he turns around and says, oh, no, 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 no. Because in his mind, like any of ours, greatness does not mean that you should be washing my feet. If I consider you the greatest, I should be washing yours. But Jesus has given this upside-down picture from the way we view things in our human pride. Because let's face it, this was a pride argument. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's going to look the best? And Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Pretty bold statement to Jesus. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You don't want to know why a lot of people reject the Gospel or distort the Gospel. You want to to know why people don't like the fact that your pastor teaches grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You want to know why they don't like it? Because it doesn't feed man's pride. Man likes to think he's done something. We're a proud people. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 Peter, if you don't allow me to wash you or to serve you, you have no part with me. I think there's reference here in symbolism to the Gospel, but I don't think it's just an evangelism passage. In fact, to the contrary, I think starting here up through chapter 17, I believe is a discipleship passage. Somebody tell me, what's the purpose of the book of John? If you're a Bible student, what's, what does John say is its purpose? Any idea? John chapter 20, verse 31, I believe, says these things we've written that you might believe and in believing have eternal life, have life everlasting. So John is the only Gospel that says dogmatically it's an evangelistic book. It's not one of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have other purposes. Of course, we can find evangelism there. But John is written for it. In fact, to believe in or to believe on is found no less than 98 times in the book of John. Okay, It's it's serious about evangelism. Very serious about it. But with that, there's this little section where right before Jesus is going to be crucified, He does some discipleship training to His boys. And I think this is part of it because let's move forward. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. See, He didn't want to be left apart from Jesus. And again, we know Peter's personality. He's ready to go. 
In fact, just a short time after this in the garden, what's Peter do when the guards come to, to take Jesus? Cuts off the servant's ear. He's, he's willing to fight. This boy is ready to go. He loves Jesus. He's ready to go. He would have had both hands up when I said, are you willing to make a difference? Are you willing to have a great life for God? Peter was raring to go and he said, not my feet only, or not, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, I believe that's a reference, he who is saved. He who has accepted the free gift of salvation by believing on Christ. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So two things I want to point out here. So what in the world does he mean by washing feet? Jeremy, you used during openings to 1 John that if we confess our sins, right? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a verse written to believers or unbelievers? Believers. Is it about salvation? Not a bit. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It has to do with our walk. Let me parallel something here. Jesus said, if you're bathed, if you're a Christian, you're not needing to be bathed. You're, you're saved. You're there. But you do need to keep your feet clean or people don't want you on their carpet telling them about me. <laughs> Does that make sense? I really believe that's a First John type of parallel. Not, you don't need to be bathed, but your feet need to be clean. You need to confess your sins and He's faithful and just. It keeps you in a position of being useful. Of being able to make a difference for the Lord. Of walking in sweet fellowship with the Lord. Those are walking things. Okay, So I love that. But He says, but not all of you are clean. Who is Jesus referring to here? Judas. So is Jesus aware that Judas has already had Satan enter him? Is Jesus aware that, that Judas is going to betray him? Again, are you willing to be used by the Lord? Are you willing to learn from Jesus? Which this will sound crazy. I think this is one of the greatest proofs that limited atonement's a horrible teaching. Jesus served even those that would reject Him. Didn't He? See, Judas, the reason I ask about your willingness, I said this is a discipleship passage. I don't want raised hands here. I just want you thinking, how many of you have ever been prompted by the Spirit to help someone and you instead just decided, oh, that's just my conscience because I'm not going to do it because that person's just going to abuse you know, I'm not going to give that guy money because he's just going to go get booze. I'm not going to give that, that guy money because he's going to buy drugs. I'm not, I just want you thinking, again, no hands raised, I just want you being honest before the Lord. How many of us try to qualify serving others based upon what we think they're going to do with it? Is Jesus aware who Judas is and what he's about to do? In fact, Judas is not only deceiving, he's getting his feet washed thinking, make them look good, Jesus, because I'm getting ready to go get paid. Has there ever been a more clear picture of somebody planning to abuse and use what they just 
than what Judas is doing here. And Jesus washed his feet and then said, go, go do what you've got to do. Listen, you all are talking about building buildings and doing things, and I love on, on people introing it, talking about this is how we make life and serving people better. Jeremy didn't ask me to do that. He might tell me afterwards he wishes I wouldn't do it. But folks, if you get behind this building project, it's to reach people, not, not for brick and mortar. It's about people. It's about serving. People that might use and abuse. But they can't use you if you're doing it for the Lord. They can't abuse it if you're doing it for the Lord. You're making a difference in people's lives who maybe don't deserve it, but may I remind you that you don't deserve salvation either. None of us do. So let's put down our, our high-powered doctrine guns and, and all of our stuff like that and listen what Jesus says should be true of us. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you are willing to do them. Is that what it says? Blessed are you if you do them. Grace Bible. If we want to be like our Savior, imitators of God as we're called to be. We're called to be servants. We're called to be servants. This doesn't mean we ignore truth. In fact, if I want to be like my Savior, I've got to be full of grace and truth. Or my pontoon boat ain't floating right. <laughs> right? I've got to be full of grace and truth. But nevertheless, truth without grace, it's a rough road. It leads to legalism. It leads to heartache. Grace without truth leads to liberalism and and sin. You've got to have both. See, I'm going to tell you this about the folks of Portage. You can serve them, and if you don't give them truth, they can go to hell on a full stomach. But I want to tell you this also. You can teach them, and without feeding them, it's hard for them to listen if their stomach's growling. Right? It's really hard to listen when your stomach's growling. So we've got to be a people of servanthood. A people who make a difference. We talk about goat status. As I was researching some things and preparing for this, I came across some quotes. And one of them was from a book that Dr. Earl Rodmacher was part of co-authoring. And the book said this, talking about Jesus, He does not need kings, but servants. And he went on to say, and he said, 
the church would be better served church follow, church people would be better served attending a followership seminar rather than one of the leadership seminars so popular today and i'm adding to that and saying i don't think you can be a leader if you're not a servant and a follower because the greatest of all time in leaders jesus demonstrated greatness by serving Folks, I hope everything works out for your building. I hope all those things. But shame on us if we're just worried about buildings without serving. Shame on us if we build without a heart that says this is about people, not about drywall. (laughs) See, we're called to be servants. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to pray for you. But I want to challenge you. Listen, if you're here today, I, see, I meet people all the time, even that have been in church all of their lives, that still have in their mind that salvation is based upon what they promised to do for God. Let's make sure you've got this clear. Salvation has nothing to do with what you do for God, but allowing Him to serve you. The cross of Calvary is God Almighty who took on flesh, serving you by dying in your place to pay for sin and rising again three days later, offering new life, eternal life that begins the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, I would urge you right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You may want to say a prayer to God. You may say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that sin results in separation, but I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again, offering me new life. God, thank You for saving me. And yes, it's a prayer of thanks because if you've believed on Christ for salvation... God says you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens in the household of God. If you've done that, body of Christ, church, listen. I want us to be good boys and girls. I want us to be known for not drinking, smoking, cussing, chewing, whatever. however you define that in your mind. But that, apart from being servants, is woefully incomplete. Are there people in your life right now that you're in coming in contact with that you can just serve? Think of that person that maybe doesn't believe there's a God or doesn't believe God is good. And may I challenge you as a coach and say, you might be the reason. Because we're His ambassadors. And to show God's good, we've got to be good. <laughs> we've got to serve them. Grace Bible. You want to be a light in this community, be the biggest serving body of believers that they've ever ever dreamed of. Let's wash some feet. If you've made any decisions today, please, you all have heard from and you know who the pastor is here. If you're a guest, Jeremy would love to meet with you afterwards after they close things out. I would love to talk to you. But God loves you. And I love to end things on my part saying this way. I love you.
and there's nothing you can do about it. Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for allowing us to look into your word. And I just pray that we've been challenged and encouraged and reminded of what a great God you are that's willing to serve us. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.